Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. The Bowery Boys, Episode 265, The History of Drag in New York City. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom Myers was supposed to be here for this show, but unfortunately he had an urgent family emergency and was called away just a couple days ago. So I am very heartbroken as we have both actually been working on this show for quite some time, for a few months actually, and we're definitely going to miss him here today. The profession of drag is the subject of this week's show. Gender illusionists costumed entertainers that span the visual gamut from supermodel to rodeo clown. Drag queens have entertained millions from Fire Island to the Castro, from Paris to Rio de Janeiro. Drag is amusement, political and cultural statement, performing art, and rebellion. Today, thanks to RuPaul's Drag Race, it's also an increasingly accepted art form. New York City is at the center of drag history. Performers influenced by the city's rhythms and its own history have redefined this craft for decades, from the West Village to Harlem, from seedy Bowery dives to the heights of the Broadway stage. In this show, I'll present to you almost 120 years of drag legacy from all aspects of New York's cultural scene. And I won't be alone on stage here. Two major movements in drag culture were specifically born here in New York in the 1980s. And to help me tell these stories, two individuals who documented those scenes. Felix Rodriguez, a videographer formerly of the Ballroom House of Milan, and a performer described by the New York Times as the accidental historian of drag, the wonderful Linda Simpson. So, start your engines, strike a pose, and prepare the runway for the history of drag in New York City.
Now, we have listeners from all walks of life here, and some of you are well-versed in queer and gender identity, while for many others of you, this is a world that you tread through rarely, if at all. So just to be clear, what we're talking about today, we're discussing the profession of drag as it was developed in New York City. Men dressing as women, hyper-exaggerated, perhaps, or an attempt at realism, or women impersonating men in the same fashion, mostly for the purposes of entertainment and public performance. This is not merely cross-dressing. And except in a few key places, I'm not going to speak too much about how individual performers identified themselves privately, whether gay or bi or transgender or even straight. Because for the most part in the historical record here, such labels are either misused, reinterpreted, or were entirely unknown then. Even more specifically, we're going to discuss drag as a pivotal part or a reflection of New York City's own gay community. And you may be surprised to discover just how far back that particular association goes. These men act effeminately. Most of them are painted and powdered. They call themselves Princess This and Lady So-and-So and the Duchess of Marlborough and get up and sing as women and dance, ape the female character, call each other sisters, and take people out for immoral purposes. I have had these propositions made to me and made repeatedly. The year was 1899, a watershed moment in cracking down on vice on the Bowery, and that was the testimony of an investigator who worked for the New York City Vigilance League. He had spent the evening at Parisis Hall on the Bowery at Fifth Street, and notorious as a resort for male prostitutes. But like many of the Bowery's most famous dance halls, this was no mere brothel but a lively place that catered to same-sex male companionship. And then there was the most infamous place of all, The Slide, over on Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village, a basement hall packed to the rafters, singing and dancing around a furiously played piano with such luminaries with names like Princess Toto, Maggie Vickers, and Phoebe Pinafore. Now, it is impossible to know from these secondhand newspaper reports if any of those people were really drag queens. Back in this era, those that frequented places like the slide called themselves by festive names to differentiate themselves from their daily lives. But I wanted to start our story here in the 1890s, as it was in places like this that New York's modern gay community was born amid the scandalous vice of the village. Quite separate from this, female impersonation had actually developed upon the vaudeville and minstrel stages in the late 19th century. A vaudevillian named Julian Eltinge achieved international fame for his uncanny replication of the female form, becoming such a huge Broadway star that in 1912, a 42nd Street theater was named after him. And believe it or not, while so much of 42nd Street's illustrious past has been wiped away, the Eltinge Theater is still standing 
Today, it's the AMC Empire Multiplex, a couple doors down from the Dave and Busters. We present to you now by remote control that famous artist, Mr. Julian Eltinge, female impersonator. His act was to create a model woman. It was done as a stunt in the fashion of a Harry Houdini magical act. In 1913, a critic wrote, Julian Eltinge has so developed female impersonation that today he is the glass of fashion for the thousands of women in search of beauty secrets. In the work of these early gender illusionists, women were neither celebrated nor worshipped. Femininity is seen as a natural wonder that men could somehow be better at. More interestingly were the early drag queens of Greenwich Village. There has been an active gay and lesbian community here in the village for over a hundred years. Maybe that's not surprising because by the 1910s, the village was of course this thriving area for artists and writers, a bohemian lifestyle that became more entrenched by the Jazz Age. And not just in the cafes and restaurants here. The most public displays of anything resembling a gay nightlife took place at balls held in many locations in the village and in the Lower East Side. And the most famous of them all were at Webster Hall at 11th Street and 3rd Avenue. Webster Hall was renowned for the wildest parties in the 1910s, attended by everyone from Marcel Duchamp to F. Scott Fitzgerald. Almost in parody of the high society balls of Fifth Avenue, the Webster Hall soirees were often masquerade balls and over the years gained the reputation as the biggest night for gay and lesbian New Yorkers, custom made for dressing up in your finest flamboyant frocks. In the 1920s, Prohibition actually seemed to encourage more gay establishments to open as the city grew lax in its enforcement of these unpopular anti-liquor laws. It's in places with such names as Paul and Joe's up at 6th Avenue and 19th Street and the Studio Club at 15th and 5th Avenue that a more refined, genuine drag scene developed, spawning such stars as Burt Savoy, and Jean Malin. Savoy actually became a rather big star in the early 1920s, a loud and brassy dame, famous for a signature red wig and wide-brimmed hat. The critic Edmund Wilson said of Bert Savoy, when he used to come reeling on the stage, a gigantic red-haired harlot, swaying her enormous hat, reeking with corrosive cocktails of the West 50s, one felt oneself in the presence of the vast vulgarity of New York incarnate and made heroic. On June 26, 1923, Savoy was strolling down a Long Island beach with some of his friends and noticed a terrible thunderstorm suddenly rolling in. He reportedly said, Mercy, ain't Miss God cutting up something awful? Before being struck by lightning, and killed instantly. But Bert Savoy would live on in a great admirer of his craft, a young woman that he met on the New York vaudeville circuit, Mae West. 
she would incorporate Savoy's mannerisms and style into her own image. In fact, drag queens were so instrumental to Mae West's early career that in 1927, she opened a play in New York that was simply called The Drag, featuring a drag ball and a whole set of scandalous personalities. And I will direct you to a back catalog show on the life of Mae West for more information. Now, I also mentioned a second drag performer by the name of Jean Malin. Malin was the queen of the nightclub floor show at the Regal Club Abbey at 46th Street and 8th Avenue, a club like so many in New York, controlled by mob boss Dutch Schultz. While Malin did indeed get his start in drag, here at Club Abbey, his shtick was simply to act as a homosexual stereotype, exhibiting exceptionally fey mannerisms for comic relief. In 1931, a gangland shootout at Club Abbey shut the club down for good. Now, I guess I should just stop here for a second and just ask a simple question. What is a drag performance in the 1920s? Of course, it's heavily influenced by the vaudeville tradition, broad jokes filled with double entendres and physical gags. You can certainly hear something like that on the drag stage today. But there's one additional component that is so important to the cultural rise of the drag queen. Music. And in New York, in the 1920s and 30s, the location for the hottest, most current, most exciting music was Harlem. The soirees in Harlem made those in the village look like a child's tea party. Imagine a ball scene similar to what we saw down at Webster Hall, but place that ball in the heart of the most vibrant music scene in the world, the foundry of jazz music, spilling out from the nightclubs that stayed open till early morning. But the Harlem nightlife was not an equally enjoyed experience. Spots like the Cotton Club were reserved for white New Yorkers only. Thus, a strange kind of white tourism took place, with thousands of downtowners experiencing the decadent delights of the entertainment district they called up here Jungle Alley. Gay African Americans held their own drag balls that, according to author George Chauncey, quote, drew hundreds of drag queens and thousands of spectators. The events grew more prominent throughout the Jazz Age. Soon, the parties began attracting downtown thrill-seekers, marveling at this odd spectacle. Langston Hughes wrote about the balls, quote, During the height of the New Negro era and the tourist invasion of Harlem, it was fashionable for the intelligentsia and the social leaders of both Harlem and the downtown area to occupy boxes at this ball and look down from above at the queerly assorted throng on the dance floor, males in flowing gowns and feathered headdresses and females in tuxedos and box black suits. Unlike vaudeville-inspired drag, the Harlem Balls emphasized an attention to physical detail, to the perfection of costume. After all, you were being presented to thousands of tourists from downtown. But as standards of drag beauty continued to reflect pop cultural influences, like Hollywood films, which were made with mostly white actresses, the winners of these balls would also increasingly be white. 
the surprising effects of this would reveal itself several decades into the future. New York's gay and lesbian world actually relied on prohibition and the lax enforcement on its survival. With the repeal of prohibition in 1933, the scene essentially retreated, seen as a rapid side effect of a city governed by a criminal underworld. Now that clubs and bars needed liquor licenses, the city could place strict moral codes onto establishments. This made cross-dressing, or attending a drag ball, or heading to a performance, extra risky. Shortly after being elected in 1933, Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia specifically banned drag queens and cross-dressers from appearing between 14th Street and 72nd Street, notably outside the village in Harlem, by the way. Believe it or not, an old New York law originally drafted in 1845 in response to disguised farmers was revitalized to rein in those who were, quote, masked or in any manner disguised by unusual or unnatural attire or facial alteration. This ancient ruling would be weaponized to legally arrest those in the LGBT community up until the 1970s and sometimes even beyond. Fortunately, by the 1940s, drag was now a national, an international affair. And in particular, performers from Chicago and San Francisco, from establishments like Finocchio's, kept the runway alive. Thanks to fashion magazines, the look of a drag queen was standardized. There were new idols to worship, more pop culture to camp up. Performers could now emulate glamorous Hollywood movie stars like Betty Grable, or perhaps the greatest of all, Judy Garland. With the advent of domestic airline travel and the national highway system, people could now travel between these relatively isolated enclaves of local gay culture. Drag queens and their admirers could compare notes. Shade was born. In 1939 came the Jewel Box Review, a traveling tour of female impersonators glamming up that old vaudeville style with the influence of the slinky nightclub. The review was based out of New York, featured mostly drag queens, but one drag king named Miss Stormy DeLarbieri, from a program I found, quote, audiences would not believe she was a girl due to her deep baritone voice. Also part of the tour was the headliner, Ms. Lynn Carter. In 1971, Carter would be the first drag queen, but not the last, to perform at Carnegie Hall. But say you wanted to perform for Judy Garland, not as Judy Garland, one need only head down to today's East Village to a place called Club 82 at 82 East 4th Street for New York's most fabulous cast of drag queen superstars, a place which opened in 1953 and remained open until the early 1970s. Club 82 was advertised outward to the straight world for couples looking for a wild night the world's foremost femme impersonators, according to the ads. Garland did in fact frequent Club 82, as did actors like Errol Flynn, and in fact there was a young performer named Harvey Firestein who actually sang a couple of Ethel Merman numbers here at the club. 
But like pretty much every other club of its type in the village, Club 82 was controlled by the mob. In particular, the Genovese crime family, an unfortunate arrangement that put a stranglehold on gay life in New York City. And as I mentioned earlier, those who frequented gay and lesbian establishments could not rely on the city or the New York police force for protection. In October of 1962, police raided the ballroom at Manhattan Center, that's today's Hammerstein Ballroom, where an annual ball was being held. From the New York Daily News on October 27, 1962, quote, Police Commissioner Michael Murphy called his confidential squad after he saw hundreds of people behind police barricades cheering the costumed men entering the building. The cops rounded up about 50 of the 2,000 persons jammed into the grand ballroom. Many were dressed in bikinis or fashionable gowns and wigs. Fraught scenarios such as the one here at Manhattan Center add great context to a small independently made documentary that was released in 1968. That film is called The Queen. It details the backstage drama of the drag queen competition Ms. All-America Camp Beauty Contest held in 1967 at Town Hall, today's austere performance space in Midtown at 43rd and 6th. The Queen is a really fascinating look at New York in the mid-1960s and features drag and transgender performers such as Flawless Sabrina, Harlow, and Crystal LaBeja featured here in one of her epic rants in the film. Darling, she didn't deserve Answer nothing. Answer me. You're not speaking from the damn camera. You have a mind. Do you think she deserved it? No, she didn't deserve it. All of them. The judges knew it, too. But she was terrible. No, she and her explanation it. for why she wanted the money to put it in the bank. <laughs> She's not getting any money. And next time she should drop the outfit off at the cleaners before she wears darling. it on stage. Remember her name, Crystal LaBeja. Her name will pop up in a very important way in this show's second half. Now, for some, drag was the first step in a deeply personal journey. In the 1960s, it was also becoming a growing political statement. The situation between the gay bars of Greenwich Village and the crackdowns by the New York Police Department came to a head 51 years ago. In the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, in front of a nondescript bar named the Stonewall Inn. When plainclothes police attempted to shut the bar down, the patrons of Stonewall and those from all walks of life that were outside on Christopher Street decided enough was enough. They pushed back, often violently, even as many of those people on the street and those patrons were arrested and dragged away. Now, last year around this time, Tom and I released an episode on the story of the Stonewall Riots, and I'll direct you there for more information. But among the crowd that evening were drag queens, and there were many transgendered people as well, most famously Marsha P. Johnson, a self-identified drag queen who took her last name from the Howard Johnson's restaurant in Times Square, and then took her middle initial, P, from, well, as she would say, Pay it no mind. Now look at my hair. I like it. It's terrible. I like it. Do you believe this hair comb costs ten dollars? Ten dollars. But you can do it yourself. Andre did it. Andre of Paris on Fifth Avenue. Why don't you do it yourself? 
yourself, it's so easy. I'll kill that queen, Andre. You just don't condemn. Well, I don't like a set look, you know. I don't like anything that looks too set. I like things a little... We want. And things that move. I think things that move are beautiful. Yeah. Like your, your bust, it moves. Because <laughs> you don't wear a bra. Do you have a bra? Yeah. It still moves. Now that was the charming voice of Candy Darling from the 1968 film Flesh, directed by Paul Morrissey, filmed on the streets of New York, and produced by Andy Warhol. Among Warhol's coterie of superstars, whose profiles he made famous, were several drag queens and transgender women whose glamour, charm, and right amount of oddness made them perfect ambassadors for Warhol's cultural aesthetic. There was Candy, who was actually from Forest Hills, Queens. There was Holly Woodlawn, the Puerto Rican glamour girl who was the inspiration for Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side. And then there was actress and theater director Jackie Curtis. Jackie Curtis is not a drag queen, Warhol once proclaimed. Jackie is an artist, a pioneer without a frontier. The New York Times profiled Jackie in 1969, Jackie was only 21 years old then, for the premiere of her debut play, a work called Heaven Grand in Amber Orbit, which debuted in a small theater in Hell's Kitchen on 43rd Street, the playhouse of the ridiculous. The profession of drag was ultimately not destined to remain on the small stages of gay bars in the West Village, although... They're still there today, fabulously chugging along. Centuries ago, men first played women's roles on the stage, and it was here that drag would make its surprising leap into the mainstream, i.e. straight world legitimacy. The Theater of the Ridiculous was an off-off-Broadway theatrical movement from the mid-1960s that incorporated cross-dressing, comedy, and camp with many drag queen actors. In particular, the work of playwright Charles Ludlam, who often acted in drag, has been cited as an important influence to everything from glam rock to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. One drag performer who certainly was inspired by Ludlam is that vessel of camp and Hollywood goddesses, Charles Bush, who first starred in his, notice the pronoun, his first one-man show on the ridiculous theater stage in Sheridan Square. Bush's act, or rather, can I call it a shtick, as it really recalls early vaudeville, his thing evokes the old drag stars of the 1950s and 60s. And his many successful off-Broadway plays, including Psycho Beach Party and Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, are the embodiment of classic camp. By the 1980s, Broadway itself was ready to strike a pose. Another off-Broadway play with gay themes and a drag queen character, Torch Song Trilogy, opened at today's Hayes Theater on Broadway in 1982, winning two Tony Awards for acting and writing for that young man who had once performed Ethel Merman at Club 82, Harvey Firestein. But I'm jumping ahead of myself here because something happened to drag back in the 1970s that would see drag performance join the American counterculture. 
Now, I'm not just talking gender-bending displays of fashion and beauty of the 1970s glam rockers, including New Yorkers like David Johansson of the New York Dolls, but actual transgender performers who performed in drag in the rock and punk scene such as the lead vocalists of Wayne County and the Electric Chairs, who then became Jane County and performed at the iconic punk spot here on the Bowery, CBGB's. Now, in the next part of the show, I'm just kidding. Did you think I was going to just ignore the most influential drag star of the 1970s coming to us from Baltimore, of course, Now, do you know where the Joyce Theater is in Chelsea? Today, it's a dance theater, but in the 1970s, it was a movie theater. And most people consider this to be the birthplace of the midnight movie, where unusual, unconventional films would meet late night, very receptive audiences. Well, in 1972, theater owner Ben Barinholtz took a chance on a film by a young director named John Waters. That movie was Pink Flamingos. From the Daily News, quote, Then they came to see John Waters' Pink Flamingos, in a rare instance of truth in advertising, correctly billed as one of the most disgusting pictures ever made. Its star, the drag queen Divine, would define another element of the modern drag persona, the grotesque. So we have come a long way from Julian Eltage, a performer that seemed to treat femininity like an Olympic sport. Here, over seven decades later, drag could finally say something profound about the human condition. I consider the spirit of Divine to be a gift to New York City, for what happened in the East Village in the 1980s builds upon her very unique legacy. Meanwhile, at the same time, the ghost of those old Harlem balls takes a surprising and glorious trajectory that by the 1980s proves to be very much in vogue. We'll tell the stories of these two extremely interesting scenes in New York City in the 1980s and 90s. I'll be joined by Felix Rodriguez and Linda Simpson. We'll get to that discussion after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, 
began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. All right, we're back in the studio to focus a little bit on the New York City drag scene in the 1980s and 1990s. Now, some of you might say, why are you spending so much time on just this particular era? Because some extraordinary things happen. Two things that we're going to talk about with two special guests. Uh, We're going to be talking about the ballroom culture and what I'm calling the downtown drag scene, both in terms of its location and really it's sort of its, its feeling and its style. So with me today is Felix Rodriguez, who will be speaking a bit about the ballroom scene history. Hello, Felix. Hi. And excited to be sitting here with Linda Simpson, who has has been a drag performer in New York City since the 1980s. I have seen you so many times, especially during the 90s, and so it's a it's a pleasure to have you here, Linda. Thank you very much, Greg. It's <laughs> nice to be here. So for those who aren't familiar with your work, what is your background here in the New York drag community? What kinds of things do you specialize in, what kind of comedy? Well, as you mentioned, I started doing drag in the late 1980s. And my formative years were spent very much working in the clubs. And um, I also published a magazine during that time. And I was just really involved in general in the scene that was happening then. And as the drag scene got bigger and bigger, I was kind of in the midst of it. So I was one of the people that was really mm, witness to the drag explosion. And also, I guess that my specialty has been always a little bit more about promoting and planning and emceeing. I'm not a musically-based queen, so Mm -hmm. I don't um, lip-sync or sing. And comedy, I guess, has been more sort of my, you know, nature. Well, the New York Times even called you the accidental historian of drag queens. And uh, I believe that's because you, as you were doing all this, you were also documenting it. I took a lot of photos when I was um, doing drag, just for fun, snapshots, and they were very random. I didn't always take pictures, but I took a lot over the years. And so about several years ago, I put a lot of them together in this slideshow presentation I do called The Drag Explosion. And it really documents the late 80s to the mid-90s, which Mm -hmm. was a a very big, momentous time Mm -hmm. in drag history because it's when drag kind of burst out of the underground and into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been uh, doing this uh, 
show in New York, and I've also been gone um, nationally and internationally with it. So it's been fun because oh, wow. uh, people seem to be very interested in that uh, era in history. And you know, it's interesting because so you're you've documented this in photography, Felix. You have actually looked at the ballroom culture as a videographer. Yes, I, I did. I um, in 1990, I was uh, attending NYU. I was in a master's program in dramatic writing, actually. But I took several classes in video um, production, and it was like I was obsessed with the ballroom culture. That's the, the community that I met, originally met, was in the neighborhood. I was very close to Christopher Street and the piers and met people from different houses. So I immediately became really, really um, passionate and, and, and obsessed is the only word I could think of, <laughs> of with that, with that mm -hmm. whole culture. Well, yeah, I'd like for you both to help me paint the picture of what, um, of what these worlds were like in the 1980s. Maybe take us maybe a step back and maybe explain what the ballroom culture is or was in the early 90s, late 80s, you know, when you first, uh, first saw it. So essentially, uh, this was something that grew out of the idea of um, other kind of drag pageants that had been happening in the 60s and 70s that had really been white dominated. And so these were started by um, African-American and later Hispanic people who did drag, uh, both drag queens and transgender people, and formed what is called the, the house system. Right. So it's almost similar to like a fraternity or sorority. It's an organization of gay, transsexual bisexual men mostly it started with transsexuals transsexuals were the ones who originated it and it started as just pageants in harlem and part of the reason why they decided to do them in harlem was because they were tired of going to pageants with drag queens of the time that were predominantly white and regardless of their talent and their beauty they never won so they decided to do their own pageants in Harlem. I believe in the late 60s, early 70s, the, the pageants started changing, right? So it used to be just one category. They had a gown and they would win a prize for the best dressed gown. But then they started incorporating the escorts. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these drag queens that would go to these pageants had these escorts that were very good looking or had very were very well dressed and they started including them in the categories. They created a category for the escorts as the first category that was added to the balls. Then they started adding the gay men, mm -hmm. right? Gay men that can pass as straight men. So houses were only at the time were only the drag queens that were walking and when I say walking, it's competing, right? They they consider competing walking, right? Mm -hmm. So when the drag queens would walk a category they had their name, and from their name, they created these houses. And it was, it was based on fashion houses. But at the time, houses were also really homes for a lot of gay men that didn't have homes or were thrown out of their homes. Mm -hmm. And these mothers, because they were the mothers of these houses, took these children in and created their house. So there was the house of Corey for Dorian Corey, the mm -hmm. house of La Beja, Crystal La Beja, who was featured in The Queen, right? These were the mothers, and they created these groups of people that then would compete together at these balls. Mm -hmm. But besides them competing at balls, they had their community. They, had, they were like families, mm -hmm. right? 
Linda, when you first arrived in New York, the drag scene that you saw, of course, I, I don't think was as much of a pageant world either. When you first decided to do drag in New York, what did this scene look like and where were you going and what kinds of things were being performed at that time? Well, my focus was on the East Village and that had a real thriving drag scene that was like no other place in the world. In general, drag in the downtown scene or in the world in large was very out. It was very mm, square. It was like a lot of older queens in dusty gowns. And there really wasn't a lot of interest among younger people um, Mm -hmm. for drag. And so drag was not in favor. Most gay bars looked down upon drag at that time. Nobody would feature drag shows. I mean, there might have been a few places like in the West Village. but, But in the East Village... There was this sort of new kind of angle on drag that was sort of um, kind of counterculture and sort of punk rock. And it was like drag is so out that we're going to make it in. So it was like an embracing of drag, but it wasn't necessarily the polished drag that had been, you know, so prevalent in the um, pageants. It was more kind of a thrift store drag. And like if someone's lip sync wasn't perfect, that was fine. And it wasn't as much um, impersonational. So a lot of the pageants were, or old school drag was focused on, you know, celebrity impersonations. The drag in the East Village was about creating your own personalities. Mm -hmm. So it was a very kooky scene and very energetic. I mean, that's what's extraordinary about these two kind of parallel scenes going on within the, the gay community. In a way, they're almost opposite in the respect that and the ballroom culture, it really is about the idea of realness and about, you know, there's like this really political ideal to it, th- to the idea of like passing. Whereas in the East Village, it's more of a, a, a grotesque version. It's not really about the real. It's about the, the hyper real, about the surreal, perhaps. Definitely the difference, again, between the uptown drag queens and the downtown, not only the racial difference, right? Because uptown, they were mostly black and Latina. Right. Downtown was predominantly white. So the difference also was that they weren't necessarily gay men that just did drag to perform. They were trying to live a lifestyle or at least in the ballroom scene, Mm -hmm. have the fantasy of passing as real women. And, you know, I mean, and you've known dozens of performers in the East Village scene. And so it's I I think it would be unfair to put them all in one particular kind of box, because I'm thinking even as you're saying, I'm thinking of someone like Candace Kane, who could have probably gone into both worlds, you know, depending on just what how she wanted to. to, There were were a lot of girls, actually, that were similar to Candace's situation downtown. So you mentioned that it was kind of these two different worlds, and it sort of was. I I actually was looking at some photos that I took recently, and they were from 1988, and it was the first ball that I ever went to. But it was down on the Lower East Side, and it was organized by Patricia Field, the boutique owner and the designer and the stylist. Mm-hmm. And she actually started a house called House of Field with her as the father. And it was modeled after, of course, the uptown houses, And then she had a ball, um, this particular one I went to, and it was incorporating all the uptown stuff, but bringing in a downtown element, too, Mm. including, like, celebrity judges like Debbie Harry and (laughs) um, Diane Brill, etc. 
And when did you say uh, the, the first ball that you uh, attended? So the first ball I attended was in 1991. It was at the Sound Factory. Oh. Um, and it was the Milan and Extravaganza Ball. So I was in a house. I was in the house of Milan. I would say like every generation has a different spin on what the ballroom scene is about. Some houses are known for, you know, having uh, runway models and dressing in labels. Um, the House of Milan was a labels house. The House of Extravaganza was the Latin house. They, you know, and the the, the ones that featured, um, you know, Jose and Lewis who were in Madonna's Vogue, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, every generation has like a different um, feel on what the ballroom is and you know now it's completely different well linda your domain has you are most associated with i should say rather with the pyramid which is a club which you know i haven't been there for years but it is still around it's still with us on avenue a can you tell me a little bit what the pyramid was like what your what your tenure were there was like mm -hmm. what was how long were you there and, and well the pyramid club started as sort of an east village you know for lack of a better word hipster hangout in the early 80s it was very um performance oriented and there was a lot of stuff and they did incorporate drag i think right from the beginning but by the mid 80s is when like the pyramid began to become more um even uh, drag themed mm -hmm. and there were some very popular parties and performers that came out of that era I started hanging out at that point and I became friends with some of the drag queens like Taboo and Lady Bunny and Happy Face Sister Dimension and so I started doing drag around that time, but I myself did not start working at the Pyramid with my own night until 1990. Mm, and by okay. then, the Pyramid was actually sort of a bit on decline because AIDS has taken its toll, so a lot of the former core crowd had died. Other people had moved on, and it just what, but the club just wasn't as trendy or as popular as it used to be. So I came in, started doing a party, and it was popular. So we helped actually revive the pyramid, mm -hmm. if I may say so. <laughs> and we gave it a little spark. So, if you wouldn't mind, walk us through what of what it would have been like on a particular night in the East Village, say in the early 1990s, for you, from your perspective. The pyramid, one of the great things about it was that it had a really big dressing room. So that was really a social center. It was a headquarters. So even as we're getting ready for the show, there would be a lot of people that would drop by. And it was great for like getting the greatest, you know, the latest gossip and uh, chatting with friends, etc. The energy was really good. Yes. <laughs> and then the show wouldn't start till one. I mean, that seems so late now, but the show didn't start till one. And that was very normal for most places. And this is on a Wednesday, too. <laughs> but we still <laughs> would have, a, um, you know, usually a good crowd. And uh, there was this, another part about the pyramid that was good was that it has stage that was accessible from the dressing room, and it was a fairly good sized stage. So um, we would do shows, of course, there with me emceeing and organizing. But but at that point, there was another bar in the East Village called the Boy Bar, which was over in St. Mark's Place, and they also had drag shows. And theirs was a little more polished, a little more show busy. But they had the same similar sensibility in mm -hmm. that we were all primarily doing drag for fun and for laughs. Mm -hmm. But so it was interesting. There were very there were two like headquarters for drags in the East. Really, Village. those two places, right? Yeah, and there was you know 
bit of an unspoken rivalry, but certainly there was <laughs> a lot of crossover too between the two mm-hmm. places also. And and a sort of a a night at the pyramid of you emceeing. It would be, of course, you on stage with sort of comedy routine, speaking to the audience. Mm-hmm. You weren't doing music, but you would have guests, I guess, that would come on and they would sing and lip sync also? Or uh, Well, it depended. I think it was mostly lip syncing, but some sang and and people did shows. I mean, we did, you know, people would do up to half an hour shows with, you know, plots and themes and um, costume changes and, you know, I mean, I, what we did um, would give the whoever was performing, whoever was the headliner, if there was one headliner, a budget, and then they could do with whatever they wanted with it, you know, in terms of spending. I mean, no one made much money. We were all in it just to really entertain each other. That was the basic point of doing it. And it's certainly there's like a certain buzz around something like the East Village where you know that there's a scene going on and there's like dozens of people around you who are equally creative and they're all sort of like fighting for that a little bit of time, a little bit of stage so they can show off their craft mm-hmm. and everything. So it's exciting to be part of that. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. And it's like for Channel 69, which is the name of the party I did at the Pyramid, as it evolved, you know, there was a core group of performers that kind of evolved. So we, it had a, like a cast of characters. And so a lot of them would become... Uh, you know, popular because they would do shows on a frequent basis. Mm-hmm. I mean, another interesting contrast uh, between these two thriving scenes is that there was probably a, even a little dancing on the stage at the pyramid, but there's not enough room for there to be elaborate dancing versus the ballroom culture where it's that is an integral aspect. One might even say it's even more central than than just the costuming. How how is dancing and in, in, in particular voguing incorporated into the ballroom scene, and when did it make its appearance? It started off as what was called at the time pop, dip, and spin, and it was kind of uh, in a way imitating what was popular at the time, which was b boy break, um, break dancing and and popping, so pop locking, spinning, and falling on the floor in a dip. Then it evolved into something that we're calling pose, 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 right? Which was imitating the poses that were in magazines, in fashion magazines. And from there it evolved to the name Vogue because that was the most popular fashion magazine at the time within that that world. So I want to ask you both specifically about how AIDS affected the the drag community, the ballroom community during this period. I mean, you both really saw it starting in the late 80s into the early 90s and when it was already decimating both the numbers of people who were in it, but was it also sort of influencing the artistry that went into it? Well, I think, again, um, in a way it was inspiring because it was a moment in time that we weren't sure, you know, how long it was going to last. So a lot of these performers were there one week and then a month later they were dead, right? So it was kind of like you wanted to capture as much as possible, in my case as a videographer, to capture this world because you knew that these people were dying, right? One thing that was really interesting and you know, a lot of people in the ballroom scene are very grateful for is that the gay men's health crisis created a house called the House of Latex. And they started off by coming to balls and just distributing condoms and pamphlets and, you know, talking to people. But they weren't, at the time, there was a lot of shame behind being HIV positive. So a lot of the people that were HIV positive didn't want to admit in front of their friends that they had the disease. So they weren't going to the person and speaking to them because they didn't want to get what we call in the ballroom scene, spooked. 
So what they did, which was very strategic, was that they started participating. They created their own house and started participating in the balls and became very familiar with the, the people involved, right? So now they have a relationship with the people in the house ballroom scene. But certainly, it, but AIDS really devastated that ballroom scene because um, Paris is Burning, which of course is such a famous documentary, uh, a lot of those people died, right? Yeah, the main the majority, characters. The majority. So 95% of the people in Paris is Burning are dead, right? And when I was videotaping the balls, you know, in a matter of like three or four years, the majority of the people that I videotaped the first couple of years were dead by, you know, in th- after three or four years. When I started drag, you know, late 80s, the AIDS scene was, you know, really full force. And um, I was publishing a magazine, an underground magazine called My Comrade. And that was sort of my response to the AIDS crisis because it was sort of a militant, uh, tongue-in-cheek magazine that sort of uh, tackled uh, gay rights or, or embraced gay rights and gay militancy, etc. And so it was, I called it the revolutionary gay magazine. But I think on a whole, like, you know, you couldn't be unaware of what was going on if you were a drag queen or, you know, any part of the gay scene. You know, it was a really difficult time. Part of the way the East Village was a little different than the West Village at that point is that it was a generational thing. Mm-hmm. The East Village was skewered a little younger. So it was people, the West Village, which had traditionally been the gay neighborhood in New York City, was really devastated by AIDS. Well, people who were a little younger weren't quite as affected, even though it hurt them, you know, a lot. Linda, were you ever in, do you perform in the clubs, like the big clubs, the dance clubs, the early 90s clubs, like the Tunnel, Limelight, did you were you did you connect with the whole club kid scene? Yes. Um I worked a lot at the big clubs, the building, tunnel, limelight, palladium. I often was hired as a hostess, like many people were back then. And that just meant you had to dress up and sort of uh, show up and, you know, create atmosphere. But um the big club scene at that time was really booming. And a lot of the clubs started hiring drag queens from the East Village scene because they wanted um, eye candy from the masses. And by and you know back then drag was pretty novel, so a lot it was a good time for jobs for drag queens. And then the club kids scene was uh, really happening at that point too in the early nineties. It had been like you know simmering for a little while. And and some of the club kids even actually referred to themselves as drag queens. And Hmm. so, you know, there was this two different camps, but they intermingled. So it was a very booming time for nightclubs Mm -hmm. because there was a lot of interest in these subcultures that were, you know, so important to the colorfulness of the (laughs) nightlife at that point. I think there's a tradition um, in the drag scene that started in the that started in the 80s and um, lived with the 90s that I even I was a part of, and that was Wigstock. Um, how did Wigstock get started? What were the roots of Wigstock, and uh, what was your involvement? Well, Wigstock started. I can't remember what year it was. 84, 85, something like that. And then Pyramid at the time was very associated with Wigstock because they sort of funded the first few ones. And it was really spearheaded by Lady Bunny. And she was the hostess of the event and was um, 
in charge of curating the talent, too. As as Wigstock went on, it became more and more of Lady Bunny's thing, but she became, you know, put a lot of effort mm-hmm. and work into it also. And so it, the first several years were held in the band shell in Tompkins Square Park. And it was just, you know, hilarious in that it was dragged during the day and outside. <laughs> so that was the real novelty. And, of course, it was a play on what, what was it? Woodstock. Woodstock, Woodstock sorry, of course. Yeah. You know, the big 60s festival. So at first there was kind of a 60s sort of feel to it with a lot of people dressing in that kind of And clothing. that's kind of Lady Bunny's style, at least. So it was often very yeah, 60s inspired. Exactly. Yeah, uh-huh. And so as Wigstock became more and more popularized, um, it had to, it finally moved and then went over to the West Side for a long time. And then I think it ended in 2002, although there have been revivals of Wigstock mm-hmm. since. Now there's a yearly event called Bush Wig, mm-hmm. which is out in Bushwick. And that is, it's modeled after Wigstock. It's a style there. And yeah. it's a variety show, too, with a lot of, like, the Brooklyn performers. Mm-hmm. That is a a good transition to kind of drag today, which is this like phenomenon that I can't imagine that you could have even conceived of back in back in the eighties. And the other thing that's interesting to me is when you do watch an episode of RuPaul's Drag Race, that I mean, now knowing the history and now knowing the different eras and different styles that go into what drag is, to see those reflected in people who may not have those historical contexts, how they someone could be doing something on stage and it could be a little bit of Lady Bunny, but it could also be a little bit of ballroom and voguing, right? I mean, just in like a like five or six seconds. And even the terminology is borrowed liberally from both particular scenes. What are you, what are your thoughts on the on sort of the this the current drag craze and the kind of like where it's going and where the destination of it is could be? Well, it is pretty amazing that drag has become so popular. And the drag scene right now is very, very dominated by RuPaul's drag race. And there's that expression like, you know, high tide raises all ships. And so, you know, it's kind of a golden era for drag in many ways. And I think it'll probably continue. Back in the early 90s when Rue actually first uh, broke through and there became a really uh, big interest among in pop culture about drag. I thought that was the point it was going to break out. But it didn't. Mm-hmm. After a while, that ended and mm-hmm. it was just a fad. So my attitude towards it is about time, right? Because we've been witnessing it since the late 80s, early 90s, and it always feels like it's going to. So hopefully this is going to be the opportunity when it really does mm-hmm. have an explosion now, if people want more information on these different drag movements that we've been talking about, well, luckily, I'm sitting with two people who have more information. Linda, where can people see some of your presentations or see some of your photographs that you've taken? I have a website called the dragexplosion.com, and that does have a sampling of the photos that I show in these presentations that I do. I also announce on the website where I'm doing presentations All right, great, right. so you can keep up cool. with me there. That way. And then Felix, you're doing something similar for the ballroom scene, correct? Yes, it's called Old School Ballroom DVD on YouTube. And I'll be launching an Instagram account as well, Old School Ballroom DVD. Of course, finally, last but not least, Linda, you are the hostess of a long-running drag bingo night down in Greenwich Village. 
Yes, I do. I host bingo every Friday and Saturday at Le Poisson Rouge. I'm a game show hostess. <laughs> it wasn't what I set out to be, a bingo hostess necessarily, but I really enjoy it. And it's fun. Um, thank you for mentioning it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that it's so successful and I want it to continue and I want everyone who's listening to at least stop in and experience the magic for themselves. Oh my goodness. I love it. <laughs> Thank you both for for joining me here Thank to talk you. about this. It's been a, it's been a, a pleasure. I'm sitting across from both of you with stars in my eyes. So, uh, so thank you very much for taking time out this afternoon. It was my pleasure. Yeah, mine too. Thank you very much, Greg. Now, one more thing from the '90s that I just wanted to add here before we leave. The show has been mostly focused on female impersonators, but there have been women performing as men, male impersonators. I've mentioned a couple on the show, but in the East Village in the 1990s, in a parallel scene to the one that Linda spoke about, there were the drag kings, not merely women dressing as men, but as stereotypes of men, influenced by Elvis Presley and James Dean. The big drag king night in the 90s was called Club Casanova, and it first got its start at, you guessed it, at the Pyramid Club in the East Village. Now, I can't help but have a favorite drag king entertainer because he's named for one of Gilded Age New York's wealthiest neighborhoods, Murray Hill. You know, I mean, this. there was so much more history to tell. There's like a million things. We've got Kevin Aviance. Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Lucky Chang's, remember Lucky Chang's, the East Village restaurant, so much that I didn't get to on the show. So perhaps a general show on the New York nightlife world in the 1990s might be in order for a future time. I want to thank Linda Simpson and Felix Rodriguez for joining me on the show. Patrons will get to hear our entire hour-long interview. It is so fascinating. It may bring, and if you're from New York and or went out in New York during this time, I imagine it'll bring back a lot of memories. So thank you for joining me on this show. Thank you for listening to The History of Dragon New York. There'll be a new show in two weeks. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs>